you can imagine like if everyone had more intellectual humility, the world would be a lot more wonderful. You know, we would be a lot more kind to each other. We would focus more on ideas and solving problems than we do on foiling each other. And we wouldn't be afraid to admit when we're wrong. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Did you know that you can bring ideas from Mind Valley into your business? If you go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhumans, you can discover Mind Valley's business offerings so you can bring personal and professional growth to the entire company. If you are the owner of a company, you know that if you invest in your employees' engagement, happiness, and learning, it'll help the bottom line and impact the business positively. And if you wish your company was bringing these kinds of products from Mind Valley Quests, Mind Valley Mentoring, and all the learnings to be a complete high-performance individual in every area of your life, then you definitely want to go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhumans to see how we can get started with working with you. Hey everybody, welcome back to Superhumans at Work. This is your host, Jason Campbell, and the guest that I have today is an incredible man who runs a platform that if you're anywhere within marketing or you've done content marketing more specifically, you would be aware of Contently. It's a leading content marketing software platform. Thousands of freelance journalists are there, available for hire. And what we're gonna be talking about today is something that a lot of us have to deal with, whether we are working remotely or in the office. As of this time, we are in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, so we're all working remotely. But we really wanna talk about what does it mean to have a dream team? How can you work together without falling apart? Which is the title of one of his three books. This one was a number one business bestseller. Now, Shane Snow, he's written for business. He's been featured on so many business magazines such as Wired, The New Yorker, GQ, Fast Company, Advertising Age, Washington Post, and so many more. He is a genius when it comes to understanding how storytelling is a powerful tool, and you can use these concepts as well when it comes to building your dream teams. We are going to make sure you all walk away with some incredible ideas that you can apply to make your teams work better and find people that can be part of them that are even more effective. Shane, welcome to the show. What a flattering intro. Thank you, Jason. Well, I'm reading your bio. I'm impressed. Like, there's amazing stuff you've been working on here. And so I'd be curious. I know about Contently. I've worked with the platform. I'm aware of it. And I kind of wanted to start there. Like, you've built a team there. You're working with a bunch of freelancers, too. So, I mean, that's, the whole concept is about people working together. So I'd love to maybe kick off with your story about, like, how did you get started with Contently and, like, where is it now? Sure. So the brief story is I was a journalist and my background before that was computer science and, you know, building online businesses. And so when I went into journalism, I wanted to focus on technology and business. It was the early days of like Tumblr and BuzzFeed and Foursquare and some of these newfangled tech media companies. So that was what I was writing about. And then other stuff in science. And I saw that a lot of my journalist peers were having a really hard time getting work. In fact, our dean actually said at graduation, I know that we just trained you in how to be amazing journalists, but I'm sorry to say that most of you won't get jobs. And that was pretty true. A lot of journalists have to be freelancers. They have to be their own business in order to make ends meet. Because I had this background in entrepreneurial stuff and being an internet entrepreneur, I was good at the freelance journalism thing because I, you know, I could hustle, I could make sales, I could get clients to pay me. And, and realized that a lot of my friends who were much better writers than me 
were not as good at that stuff. And so Contently was sort of born out of that. And a friend of mine who was looking at a similar thing where he was trying to hire journalists to write for his blog network that he was building and having a hard time and realized that there's a lot of people out there with a lot of talent for making content. And we're not talking about outsourcers, but, but really talented people, but who also need some help finding work and managing their careers. So Contently was born out of that. And to what you got at, the main thing that made Contently work was how we figured out how to make the relationship between a freelancer and a client work like a remote team. And in learning how to manage work across space and time and contractors and full-time people, we built a really cool software platform, but we also built a really cool company that works together really well from a teamwork standpoint. And I'd be curious to pick your brain on something here, which is the fact that as you built this and you're working with, you said freelancers, right? You're now talking about building better teams. Do you find that working with freelancers demands you to be even more diligent on how you manage the people? Like, is it even harder than having a full-time employee? And why would that be the case or not? In many ways, so there's pros and cons, but the key insight for us as we were trying to build out what first was this job marketplace and then became this whole software platform and ecosystem, the key insight was that if you treat freelancers like part of your extended team, things go a lot better. So initially we thought, oh, we'll do outsourcing or crowdsourcing. There's lots of people out there with lots of talent, throw them assignments, have them do it, and you will get the cream will rise to the top. And that's just not how it works with creative work. When you know your brand reputation is on the line or when you're speaking to a very specific audience, you know this as a podcaster, you're speaking to a very specific audience. You understand your audience in a way that a random outsourced writer may not. And so if you were going to hire someone as a freelancer to help you write for the podcast, you would want to get on the phone with them. You'd want to have a feedback process. You'd want them to get better at understanding the audience and what works over time, the more they work with you. And that's the opposite of, you know, of outsourcing or crowdsourcing. That really is treating someone like part of your team. And the core thing there is trust. And what we learn in Contently is initially we thought, well, if we give people too much freedom to connect, then they'll cut us out of the middle. We didn't trust that people wouldn't do that. What we learned is that really for us to build a business that was worth paying for, we had to provide so much value that it was worth not cutting us out. And part of that actually ended up being, again, sort of on the theme of trust. We protected the freelancers. We trained the freelancers. We gave them such a good deal. We negotiated rates for them. We would pay them on submission of their projects so they don't have to hound clients for checks. We did so much to help them, to show them that, hey, we're going to do all this work for you in exchange for you doing right by us and our clients. And then for our clients, we gave them complete access to these freelancers. We gave them their phone numbers. We helped coach them and how to work with them as if they were, were part of their team and their family. And so when people did hire some of the freelancers that they worked with through Contently as full-time employees, we celebrated that. And they still use our tools because we're doing more than just making connections. That's brilliant. It seems like you really operate your business and the whole platform from a place of love as opposed to fear, which I think is a symptom of a lot of other industries. And I can think of another platform, Upwork, where I personally have a virtual assistant that I've been working with for almost three years. And I still use Upwork because it provides that value. And I see contently kind of an equivalent here where you actually build so much trust, so much value that you get to have that beautiful relationship happen. I like that. Thank you. 
at this point, Shane, I want to switch over to this whole idea of the dream team here. So you're already working with a lot of building these relationships and from them is like strangers coming together, creating value. And now we're talking here more about working with my teams, working with my direct colleagues. So what are we discovering here? Like, is there some new insights that you were able to pick up that is different from what we used to know about running teams? Yeah. So there's a few things that are really key. A lot of the work that's been done on teamwork from a social sciences and psychology and business research standpoint has focused on what makes teams dysfunctional and how to avoid that. So, you know, if you don't take accountability, if you don't communicate, the things that are obvious now, what I really wanted to focus on when I was exploring dream teams was what we were starting to see at Contently and in our own team. But what is the right set of circumstances and habits and ingredients for when a team actually is the opposite of dysfunctional, when they're super functional, when they add up to more than the sum of their parts, they're super additive and they can get into a flow where they make each other better. And the things that go into that kind of team are a little bit different than the things that go into just a functional team. In fact, they go against the common wisdom in many ways. One that is at this point a little more intuitive, but I think was less discussed when I started working on dream teams is the pragmatic case for having different people on your team. So in business, we talk about diversity a lot as a good thing to do, including people from a moral standpoint, it's good from a PR standpoint, a lot of companies really are down with that. But the pragmatic case for including different people on your team and in your thinking process is the simple math that two heads cannot be better than one unless they think differently than each other. If two heads think the same, they're just going to be as smart as whichever one of those heads is smartest. So that's the foundation for dream teams. And there's a few things that sort of flow from that that go against the common wisdom, even though it's intuitive once you hear it. Yeah, we have to think different if we want to be better than any one of us. But after you accept that, then you come up against common wisdom and teamwork, like you want to recruit for culture fit. Well, culture fit is another way of saying think and behave like me. If you instead, if you flip that around and say, you know, we want to recruit for culture add. We want our culture to be a place where people are contributing so that it becomes something greater than all of us. Again, a simple thing, but a very key difference that when you look back on history, this is exactly what makes the difference between teams that really break new ground and teams that don't. Wow, Shane, everything you're saying really makes me think of when I first read a book like Good to Great, right, which is one of the classics where a lot of the principles from these building teams are all about like, hey, here's how you make a really good team. Yet here you're stepping into what makes a really great team, what makes a dream team, which goes against everything else. This is wonderful. And I'm kind of pushed back because I'm guilty of always trying to recruit salespeople. I love charismatic, confident people. And like when I'm trying to build a team... I'm naturally going to be biased towards someone that I like, and I'll typically like someone that's like me. So like, how do I overcome this bias? I've heard about these ideas around diversity, and I've had a lot of failures hiring people that were a little version of me or a big version of me and realizing that it's bringing no innovation. But I still have the bias of going towards that direction. So how do I fight this bias and what will happen when I do? It's totally natural, and it comes from the mistaken idea that getting along is what helps a group to be effective. Getting along because people, you know, you can read each other's minds, someone reminds you of you, you can speak the same language, means things are easy. Communication is easier if you have a lot of similarities. But that does not necessarily translate to making progress. 
communication is important for progress. But once again, if you're all on the same page, you will be limited by whoever is the smartest or whoever has the power. So if you're in luck, you hire a bunch of great salespeople who think like you and you yourself are very creative and don't make mistakes, then things will go okay. And that's kind of been the model for leadership and management for many, many years is, oh, we want the manager to be the brains and then just have people that can take their orders. But you'll be limited by your group. So I think you know to get at your question, how do you get outside of that? Because it's easier to recruit people that you can understand and relate to. It's easier to find those people because they're probably you know your friends or you, you gel with them more easily. I think stepping back and reminding yourself that the way that you will get better is by having people push you to think differently, have people push you to explore avenues of thought that you hadn't before, which is really the second, and I think to me the most counterintuitive principle of dream teams, which is that it's productive conflict that makes the difference between a team that has potential and a team that reaches past its potential. So it's actually the tension between different ideas. It's a willingness to say, well, I don't agree with that, or I don't understand that, let's explore it. And it's a willingness to bring in people who push your thinking and cause you to need to reassess what you think or change your mind or admit you're wrong or admit there's a better way. There's this classic thing in management about crossing the chasm and what got you here won't necessarily get you there. The way that you get there when what got you here won't get you there is by injecting different viewpoints, different ideas, and having them push you to reinvent yourself a little bit. And that necessarily means some discomfort and some pain. So we say you want to recruit people based on referrals. You want to recruit people that you get along with really well. I think what you actually want to do is include people in your team or just in your sort of brain trust of people you consult include people who you cannot get along with well. That makes sense. So you could sort of diagram it out on two dimensions, like one of those two by two charts. If the up and down dimension is complete support for your ideas and way of thinking, and the other is complete divergence from your ideas and way of thinking. And then the other side of the chart, the horizontal is complete support for you personally versus complete, you're on your own independence, lack of support for you personally. The magic part of that chart is the total difference in ideas and lack of support for your way of thinking and the total support for you as a person. Because in there, you can be great to each other, but you can also engage in productive conflict. So this whole thing about you know wanting to work with people who are like you and who are nice so you can get along so you can be productive comes from the 1970s when we started doing business research that basically a bunch of studies showed that people with your same personality will have less conflict with you at work. And so therefore you'll be happier. But then all of these books got written about how we need to get along and be nice and all that. It turns out that you can be nice, but you don't want to let go of that conflict. What you want is to be nice and have conflict. So that's that second piece. And I'll say one more thing that just the presence of people who are expressing the fact that they are different or come from different places does actually help to make that more comfortable. On Mindvalley's own website, I noticed that on your team page, everyone has the flag of the country they come from, like as part of the team. And so when you brought up, you know, you hire salespeople that kind of remind you like you, I'm going to guess that actually at Mindvalley, there is a culture of recognizing 
and celebrating that we come from different places and that's why we're great together. Not, oh, look, we all wear the same uniforms and we all came from the same you know group in school and that's why we're great. No, it's actually the opposite. So I think you guys are in a good place starting point from that standpoint. Well, I have to say like we laugh a lot because MindVal is kind of like a little United Nations, right? Because we have so many people from different countries and we under, I'd say we underappreciate how we overcome the challenge of cross-cultural management within MindValley, like we do it quite well. We kind of take it for granted now that I speak with you right now, because I can think of people from, you know, someone from Latin America having conversations with someone from Eastern Europe, having conversations with American. It's a stark, the differences of values that we have. And then we bring that into the conversations and we still are able to make it work. And when I hear you speak of these, I'm like nodding my head here going like, Yes, I've heard how, you know, crucial conversations are type of literature I've read about how, you know, the infighting, the tension. I've also had a past guest that I interviewed talked about psychological safety. When you're at that highest level, you can challenge those ideas. And I love how you painted those two axes when you actually respect each other, but yet still have different ideas. You can go in within a safe space. You can challenge these ideas. But I'm going to bring something that I want to know if you've ever encountered, which is, It sounds to me like you need to be a leader with a certain level of emotional maturity to be able to accept this kind of environment. What happens when you actually don't have that? Because I feel like people will get easily threatened, challenged, and shut down. Like, what is that thing I need to nurture within myself when I'm going to chase these beautiful things like diversity and tension and fighting that actually nurtures better growth? Oh, you just served up the other thing that is, I would dare say, the capstone principle, if not the most important factor in what makes for a dream team is something that in psychology they call intellectual humility. What intellectual humility is, is the willingness to revise your viewpoint, to change your mind, to do something differently, but also having the level of discernment to know when you shouldn't. So it's not being gullible. It's not being so open-minded that your brains fall out, as they say, but it's also not being stubborn. And when you break apart intellectual humility, you can imagine like if everyone had more intellectual humility, the world would be a lot more wonderful. You know, we would be a lot more kind to each other. We would focus more on ideas and solving problems than we do on foiling each other. And we wouldn't be afraid to admit when we're wrong. But when you break apart intellectual humility, it sort of breaks down to a few elements. One is what you actually mentioned. It's respect for other viewpoints, no matter where they come from. This doesn't mean agreeing with every other viewpoint but it means hearing people out before you cast judgment, even if it's coming from someone that you don't like or a place that you don't expect. That simply being willing to listen and explore another viewpoint is a starting point. If you don't do that, you can't possibly change your mind about anything. The second is overcoming your overconfidence intellectually, which means that you know that you could be wrong about things and you recognize that even things that have helped you succeed can be upgraded, that your way of thinking can always be upgraded, even if your way of thinking has been right in the past, which is something that a lot of leaders have a hard time with. A lot of managers are stubborn and jerks, not because they're stupid, but because they're successful. But then the third thing, third element, is the thing that gets in the way of most people with intellectual humility, and especially managers. And this is ego. So it's specifically not being able to separate your sense of identity and self-worth from your ideas. So when you have a debate that could be productive, but you start to take things personally, 
or winning the debate becomes personal to you or to your status or to the status of the group that you represent. That means your ego is attached to the idea. That means you are attached to it and that gets in the way of change. So to your point, a lot of leaders have a hard time and will default to the, okay, well, let's just have people who think like me and let's let me be in charge and be the smart one, take the credit and be limited by that. Let's roll the dice. They don't necessarily think of it that way, but that's what they default to because that's easier than letting go of your ego and saying, you know what? The team needs to be smarter than me. So therefore I need to be willing to admit that I'm wrong. And people have a hard time with being able to set the right boundary with that because you know the wall that goes up when you have a huge ego that just doesn't let other people and their ideas in is bad but not having any kind of a filter system of you know how important you are and how you can bring your skills and when you should say no and when's the right time to be stoic that becomes much more challenging but also history has shown that the kinds of leaders that do consistently make breakthroughs not just once when they get lucky are the ones that are able to adapt like that. Shane, as you say this, I can just think about the companies that might not be around today. I'm thinking about the blockbusters, you know, that probably were in a stuck rut where they're recruiting a lot of people of similar thinking. And now you don't have that opportunity to seize new opportunities and to drive innovation since you're only recreating what has worked in the past. Again, speaking to the fact that you can't bring those new ideas forward because you're always going to be repeating the same patterns. What got you here doesn't get you there. Seems very relevant. And I think that's really what I'd, I'd want to drive as we close this off is just like, I see now that if I'm bringing that diversity, it's much more powerful, brings innovation, really drives that kind of emotional maturity in everybody to go out, know that they're on the same team, yet they're not necessarily needing to have the same opinions. You're challenging these to let the cream rise to the top. And I'd love to see what we could give for people listening here as an action to take, whether I'm in a team or I'm leading a team. When I understand these kind of dream team concepts, what's something that I could do when I show up to work tomorrow that would allow me to step into something greater than what is just good? There's two things that I would love to share. One is you should build an informal brain trust of people who think very differently than you and start to ping them for advice and ask them to tear your ideas apart. First of all, when you invite critique like this, it becomes a lot less painful to take it because you asked for it. So your ego can sort of feel protected. But find the person who has the most to say about what's wrong about you and your work. Find the person who has the total different perspective on life than you put together this informal team and just start asking them for help and advice. You'll build a lot of respect that way, but this helps you to build your own cognitive diversity on your team of you. So no matter what your official team setup is, I would recommend doing that. And you'll be amazed at how easy it is, how much easier it is to grow and to adapt and to change your mind when you invite that change even if people give you, you know, really difficult things to hear. The second thing that I would say is there's a lot of little things that you can do, little habits that can help you to operate with more intellectual humility and seeking the kinds of conflict that you need because you feel comfortable with it. I have a quiz, actually, it's free that basically will, it takes like five minutes. It's shamesnow.com slash IH for intellectual humility. But I take that and what it'll do is it will break down those areas that I mentioned and how well you're doing in sort of a theoretical standpoint, but then also in scenarios to help you see what the gap is between how 
well you think you do at intellectual humility and being open-minded and where you actually are. And I guarantee you will be surprised. So when I took this quiz, I failed spectacularly on the separation of ego from intellect. And I did a little more poorly on the overconfidence thing than I thought. And I was flabbergasted because I write about this stuff. I'm one of the most prominent journalists researching this stuff. And yet I still did pretty bad on it. And that speaks to you know, I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are very smart people, and that that can actually get in the way of you getting smarter. So take an intellectual humility quiz and see how you do. And just looking at the results will help you to value this skill a little bit more. And then from there, there's lots of habits and things you can learn, you can read about. But that's what I would do first. Shane, you have been a wealth of knowledge on this show. We just went through so much stuff and I want to make sure that we'll have the show notes. We'll include a link to this quiz that you can all go and take because I think it's going to be very powerful. And what I want everybody to understand here is we've just scratched the surface from the concepts from the Dream Team book of Shane here. So I would highly encourage anybody who's in a team, running a team, wants to just be better. Guess what? you're gonna need teams to do great things in the world. And if you can learn how to build great teams or dream teams, you're gonna make so much more impact than you ever thought possible. So definitely pick up a copy of this book if you resonate with these ideas. I definitely know I am. I love these ideas. I wanna start going deeper into it because I think this is the next tip of the iceberg to really get to a level of excellence. And just to summarize what we discussed here is the fact that if you wanna have a dream team, it's not gonna be by following the don't fail by doing this advice that was created in the 70s. You really wanna separate what does it mean to be an excellent team and it goes against the conventional wisdom. You wanna be able to see how you can create diversity, not because it looks good on paper, but because it works at driving innovation. You wanna encourage conflict. You wanna get yourself to a level of intellectual humility to have that kind of emotional intelligence to encourage that kind of debate within your teams so that you're gonna see the best ideas are gonna come up, which don't necessarily always come from you. And as you do this, make sure to go ahead and build that little group of people that you can have challenging your ideas regularly to help you grow personally so that you're going to lead teams even better. Even if it's not a formal group, that tip is amazing. Go and see who are the people you can surround yourself with that'll challenge those ideas. I know for me, there's this one guy I know, I'm going to call him out. His name is Gareth. He's the biggest troll on the planet, but he's super smart. And I always love putting my ideas in front of him because he will tear them apart. And when I do this, I grow. So seek that discomfort. And this is the point. Doing this is not the easy path. It is not the comfortable path. It is the path for greatness. And so when you follow these advices, you'll see that you are going to grow, your team is going to grow, the company is going to grow, and you'll come out on top as a much better person. Make sure to go check out the link in the show notes where you can do this humility test, intellectual humility test, and you might be surprised with your own results. I know right after this recording, this is what I'm going to go do because I'm curious to find out because I love your own humility, Shane, where you shared how even as you teach these things, it is not necessarily meaning that you are immune to all of it and you're above it all. You are right with us and you're learning yourself. And I know for me, a lot of the times I find myself drawn to teach the things that I'm learning myself. And I think if everybody goes in with their own intellectual humility and know that there's so much places for us to grow, we'll be better teams, which means we're going to have a better world. And that's all what we want right now. So Shane Snow, thank you so much for coming on the show. You shared us so much amazing stuff. And everybody listening, thanks for tuning in. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast.